You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. Well, open up your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4, and that's where we'll be spending our time this morning. I want you to imagine for a moment that you've been arrested, arrested for sharing the gospel, and, and you were out telling people about Jesus, and now, now you're in jail because of it, behind bars. Your case is maybe kind of working its way up toward the Supreme Court, but you know there's basically no chance. Um, You're not going free. Uh, That would take a miracle. And so unless God intervenes, you're going to spend the rest of your life in prison or possibly just be executed. In the middle of that, uh, you're writing a letter to your church back home to ask them to to pray for you. How would you ask them to pray? What, What would you ask for specifically? I think if I was writing that letter, um, I'm thinking, give me, pray for hope, pray for strength. Um, but let's just be honest, we're going to pray that I'd be set free, right? Pray that I would get out of here, that I'd be released. That, that's a pretty logical prayer request. I think all of us would have that at least somewhere on the list, that, that I would be able to, to go home. Well, this is exactly where Paul finds himself as he's writing uh, this letter to the Colossians. It was probably about three years before this. Uh, he had gotten back from his third missionary journey out planting churches. He was visiting friends in Jerusalem. Uh, when, when some of the Jews who, who didn't like him because he was preaching about Jesus, um, they confronted him. They falsely accused Paul uh, of bringing a Gentile, a non-Jew, into the Jew-only part of the temple. And that wouldn't have been such a big deal except that they made their accusation in the middle of a, of a big crowd and they got everyone so worked up that it, that it started a riot. And so the, the Roman soldiers, they didn't really care who was right or who was wrong or, or the details of it. They just wanted the riot to stop. And so they arrested Paul uh, and, and hauled him out of there. And basically, the, the Roman governor, Felix, was just too much of a coward to set him free. If I let Paul go, um, it could start another riot. It's just easier to forget about him there. And so Paul spent two years in prison there for no reason whatsoever. Two years later, um, he used his right as a Roman citizen to to demand a trial before Caesar. Basically, their their Supreme Court, Caesar himself, is going to see your case. There's no case to make. Um, There's no question even to ask, but this is his only hope uh, of getting out. So um, they they load him onto a boat, and he's shipwrecked and almost died, but eventually he makes it to Rome, and and there he waits. He waits longer. You can imagine this case is not exactly high on uh, Caesar's priority list either. Um, And yet, as, as, as frustrated as he could have been. The, the Lord's not wasting this time. God inspired him in this time to, to write some letters, letters to different churches that he had planted on his journeys. And uh, those letters, at least some of them, we now know as, as books in our Bible, Philippians, Ephesians, Philemon, and Colossians. So this is, this is where Paul's at as he writes this letter to the church in Colossae. We saw last week he encouraged them to to continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful and thankful in it. And then verse 3, he says, pray also for us. Speaking of himself and some of his friends that come to to join him and support him there during his imprisonment. And of course we expect he would say, pray pray that I would be released. Pray that I'd get out of here. Pray that God would, would set me free so I can go plant more churches, so I can serve him, so we can, can we continue this work that we've been doing, that, that God would set me free. That's not what Paul asked for. Paul, who is in prison for sharing the gospel, asks the church in Colossae that they would pray for him, that he'd be able to share the gospel more. In Paul's eyes, 
That's how central this gospel ministry is. This new life uh, is so defined by, by sharing the gospel, by evangelism, that, that he has everything else taken away. And his highest concern, his forefront in his mind, is, is not freedom to go home, freedom to see his friends and family, even freedom to go do ministry in different ways, but, but that he would be able to share the gospel. To do the very thing that landed him there in the first place. Now this is Paul's sincere prayer request, asking the, the church there to pray for him. But at the same time, he's still teaching them and, and teaching us um, Verses 3 and 4 through his example, uh, and then directly through his commands in verses 5 and 6. And so that's, that's where we're going this morning. Um, the new life is a life of evangelism. Telling other people this great and glorious hope that we have in Christ. Um, look with me, Colossians chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 3 to 6 together. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Would you pray for me? Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the life of Paul and his example that we see um, here in your word. God, thank you for this glorious gospel. This gospel that has redeemed us and rescued us from the pit of sin and hell. But has given us new life that has transformed everything about us. Help us now, Father, as we um, consider evangelism as we consider spreading this gospel to those who need to hear it. God, that you would so work in our hearts, that you would fill us with the joy and the hope in Christ, that that would overflow uh, into faithfulness to this call, to be witnesses. Lord, I pray that you would be at work as I speak, that my words would be true to your word. God, if there's anything that I have uh, prepared um, that, that is not of you, that is not faithful to your word, that, that would just, those words would fall to the ground. And Lord, that, um, that your word would be faithfully proclaimed this morning, that your spirit would be at work in our hearts um, to encourage, to challenge, to transform us more and more uh, to the image of Christ, to faithfulness to what you've called us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Well, looking back, uh, at, uh, at verse, um, sorry, um, it's been a long time since I've gotten that lost in the middle of a sermon. Here we are, looking back at verse 18, is where I wanted to be. Um, Paul has been showing what this new life in Christ looks like. Right? It's the first half of the book. He's defending who Christ is as supreme over all. He's defending the gospel against the, uh, the, the philosophies and the mysticism and these things of the, of the day, the legalism. Uh, and then he's been unpacking, um, this is the new life. This is what it's all about. Uh, and he moves into um, what does it mean to live as a Christian in our marriages, uh, as husbands and wives, in our home, as parents and children, and then at work as employers and employees. And then uh, verses 3 to 6, um, he, he brings this, this section to a close. This is kind of the last main section of this letter before we get to the conclusion. Um, and he turns now kind of from what does the gospel do in my life to now what does the gospel do out there? How does it change how I relate to the rest of the world? And the answer is this, this new life takes this, this wonderful news, this gospel message, this news of the, the hope we have in Christ, the news of the, the rescue of our souls from, from sin and death that has that so radically transformed us, and it takes it out. It shares it with lost sinners. This new life was meant to be shared. It's meant to be shared. Three things Paul has here about the, the new life and evangelism. First, that, that by his example, um, Paul encourages them and us to pray 
for the gospel work. Pray for the gospel work. So looking back at at verse 3, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. So before we go anywhere else with the gospel, before we try to do anything else, the, the first stop is prayer. Pray. Uh, pray for an open door for the word. Different translations do different things with that phrase there. It's, it's a little bit tricky. Um, I, I think the ESV gets it right. I, I think they get the logic of the Greek text there, and I think it matters. Um, it's not an open door for Paul. It's not an open door for Paul's message or for Paul to speak. Um, it is an open door to Paul for the word. You see it? It's the word that this door is open for. Yeah, Paul's involved there, but Paul's focus is on the work of the word. And, and it has been through this, through this whole book. When we share the gospel, it's the word that does the work. The way that Paul speaks about the word throughout Colossians uh, comes out very clearly um, in, in Colossians 1, 5, and 6. This is the way the word came to Colossae. Listen to this. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you. And indeed, in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So you see the the connection there between the the word and the gospel. Paul uses those interchangeably here. That's going to help us out later as well. Uh, But notice it's it's the word that came to them. It's the word that that was increasing among them and bearing fruit among them and, and around the world. And so uh, I think it was Augustine who said it first, and then Spurgeon quoted him, um, the truth is like a lion. It's like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. You you just need to turn it loose. The lion will defend itself. So often I think we we bear a burden in evangelism, uh, or we fail to do evangelism because of this burden, and, and it's not a burden that we should bear. It is not our job to convince people to trust in Christ. It's not our job to persuade them, to to make them believe. It's not our job to to, to have all of the apologetics and the answers. We ought to think of the word like a lion, the gospel like a lion, or if you prefer, uh, a sword. Hebrews 4.12 The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division between soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and tensions of the heart. The word is powerful, all on its own. It's mighty. Isaiah 55, 11. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. Uh, It shall not return empty. It will accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. It's a lion. It's a mighty sword. It is the word of the Lord that that will accomplish what the Lord purposes. Do you think about evangelism that way? That that you have in your hands this spiritual atom bomb that you just need to release. You just need to let it go. Let's get specific. What does he mean, the word, here? What is Paul talking about? We saw earlier, Colossians 1.5, that, that Paul uses the word and the gospel interchangeably. Um, he says here, the, the word, which is the mystery of Christ. So then we have to ask, what, is, what does that mean? What is the mystery of Christ? Well, back to chapter 1, um, verse 25, he said it was his mission from God to make the, the word of God fully known. That's Paul's job. And then verses 26 and 27, he says, The word of God is the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the the mystery, it maybe isn't what we initially would think it is. Paul says mystery, but he doesn't mean it's, it's something that can't be understood. Um, he, he doesn't mean it's something mystical or unknowable. Um, 
When Paul uses the word mystery throughout the New Testament, think that which was once concealed, now revealed. It was hidden. It was unclear. It was there in the Old Testament, but it was, it was shadowed. Now it's fully revealed. Now it's out there, revealed to the saints. Specifically, he says, the mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery of Christ is the gospel. It's the, it's the truth that because of the death of Christ on the cross, we as sinners can be forgiven. That we can have hope of heaven, that, that in Christ there's, there's forgiveness, there's salvation. That's it. That's the mystery. Uh, that is the word of God, the good news about Jesus. And of course, you could, you could expand that and fill that out with all kinds of, of wonderful truths, or we can just boil that right down to its basic elements. But Paul says, pray. Pray that God would open a door for that gospel message to, to do its work, to do what, what I can't do. And he apparently um, is answered. The prayers of the Colossians for Paul, that the word would be at work, um, it was effective. God answered those prayers. Uh, about two years later, Paul would write another letter, still in prison, uh, a letter to Timothy, who was now pastoring the church in Ephesus. In 2 Timothy 2, 8 and 9, he says this about his time in prison. Remember, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. Now listen to this. But the word of God is not I'm bound. I'm stuck here in chains. Oh, but the word of God is not bound. It continues. God has opened a door for the word to be at work. Um, the same season he, as he wrote Colossians, he wrote the book of Philippians, um, still from prison again. Uh, verses one, uh, chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. He says this to the church in Philippi. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, he's talking about his, his wrongful arrest and his imprisonment, whatever, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So his, his enslavement, his, his wrongful arrest is now uh, even more opened a door for the gospel. It's still at work and people are hearing the name of Jesus and, and getting saved. Do you want to see the word of God at work like that? I do. Can we say that in olds? Hey, what God is doing here in this church um, has been so powerful that, that all of olds has heard about the work of Christ. Everybody knows. We want to see the word set loose. We begin with prayer. We begin with prayer. Pray. Pray that God would work. Pray that he would open doors in the hearts of your, your neighbors and your coworkers, your friends, your family. Pray. And I know some of you have been praying. I know that there are some here who have been praying for years for children or parents. Don't be discouraged. Don't, don't give up. Don't relent in that. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it, that the Lord would open doors, that he would be at work, that he would do the thing that only he can do in, in transforming and removing the heart of stone and putting in a heart of flesh. All of our evangelism should start in prayer, should begin on our knees. Pray for the gospel work. Secondly then, Paul says, proclaim the gospel truth. Pray Pray for the gospel work and then proclaim the gospel truth. Step out into it. Be part of this process of which we've been praying for. And so he says in, in verse 4, so that beginning from the, the start of verse 3, pray for us also. And then verse 4, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. So this is his second prayer request. Pray that God would open the door for the word and then pray for me, that I would do my part, that I would make it clear. Our job is to make the gospel clear. The word clear there has the idea of shining a light on something. Imagine you're trying to look at a picture in a dark room. You might see some of it, right? But 
but, but in the dimness, you can't quite make it out. You can't see the, the details in the background. Maybe you can't even quite tell who the picture is of. It's not exactly clear. What do you do? You reach in your pocket, you pull out your cell phone, and, and you turn on the flashlight. We shine a light on it, and all of a sudden, it's obvious. Everything is clear now. I can see it. I make sense of it. That's our goal in evangelism. There's nothing wrong with being persuasive or, or engaging or entertaining as we speak or, or winsome and, and friendly. All of that is, is helpful and good. But, but our number one goal, the main thing, is that we would make the gospel clear. We would shine a light on Christ. That's how we turn it loose. We make it clear. Paul says, this is how I ought to speak. This is how it is necessary for me to speak. This is the, the right kind of speech in, in proclaiming the gospel. Can you make the gospel clear? Given the opportunity, are you able to, to articulate the mysteries of Christ? It's the old elevator pitch. You get into the elevator and, and you've got six floors from here till there to share the gospel. Can you do it? Can you put out clearly and cohesively the, the, the necessary elements of the gospel. And it doesn't need to be complicated. Again, there are, there are rabbit holes we could go down. There are depths and wonders to this, this mystery. Um, but the gospel itself at its core is simple. And, and, and frankly, um, a, a well-taught child should be able to do this. But it does take a little thought. It takes a little work and, and preparation. I've said this plenty of times before. I think it's helpful to say it again. Um, one, one simple outline to use as, as just a guide for your thoughts um, is the gospel in four words. This is what I go through with my kids frequently as I can. Um, the gospel in four words. God, man, Christ, response. Number one is God. We start with God. Um, we can't assume God, in our day and age, I think in any day and age, we need to begin talking about who is God. There is a God, and he is a creator of all things, and he is holy and righteous and good. Number two, then, is man. God created us. He created us to be in relationship with him, to find our, our joy and our wholeness and our life with him, and we sinned. We rebelled against him. Adam and Eve did and plunged the whole human race into that rebellion. And let's just be honest, you did as well. And for that, this is important, we deserve death and hell. That's it. That is the, the righteous judgment of God upon us. There's no getting around it. The wages of sin is death. So God, man, Christ. That's why Jesus came. That's it. God himself in human form lived the perfect life. And this is important. In his death, he took our sin on himself. He died in the place of sinners. He paid the debt that we could not pay. God, man, Christ finally responds. The gospel does come with a call to action. And let's be clear here. The call of the gospel is not believe in God. That can mean all kinds of things. Lots of people believe in God and, and don't understand the gospel. The call of the gospel is not uh, give your heart to Jesus. I'm not sure what that means. The Bible never uses that language. The, the, the call of the gospel is not invite Jesus into your heart. According to the Bible, we respond to the gospel in two ways. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Repent means turn away. Right? We, we turn away from the life of sin and rebellion against God. We, we give up. We, we renounce that old life of rebellion. I'm not, I'm not going that way anymore. I'm done with that. And then faith is turning to. Two sides of the same coin. You can't turn away from something without turning to something else. So we turn away from sin and we turn to Jesus. Trusting in him, putting our hope in him. To believe um, 
in, in his work on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin. So it's repentance and faith. God, man, Christ, response, repent and believe. Make it clear. Make it clear. Don't, don't miss the obvious here, though. We need to proclaim it, right? I would just recommend this little gem. If you're thinking, man, I don't know that I could do that. Maybe for the next five minutes, I could say, God, man, Christ responds. But I'm going to get home, and that's going to fall out of my head. Um, this is a great little book. It's called The Gospel, or What is the Gospel? Uh, Greg Gilbert. Um, this one is going to go back into our library the moment I'm done here. Um, grab it. And if you're trying to be polite Canadian and waiting for someone else to get it, they'll get it next week. Get there first. If you're going to read it, grab it. Um, I'm going to put it back there and someone will read it. it it's all of like 75 pages. So, oh, wrong. It's 107. Um, it will not take you long. It's a beautiful, simple read. It's clarifying. It's helpful. Um, use that as a resource. Uh, it'll be at the back after the service. Um, So we need to know the gospel. We need to be able to to make it clear. And then we need to actually proclaim it. We we need to actually make use of that knowledge. The gospel uh, is a message, right? And as a message, it needs to be spoken. It needs to be spoken. I I suppose it could be written, um, but the same principle. Our mission in its simplest form is, is this, to go and make disciples. That's what Jesus left us with. That's, that's our marching orders, every single one of us. And, and the way that we make disciples is, is the proclamation of the gospel. So Romans 10, 14, um, Paul asks this rhetorical set of questions. First, I guess, verse 13, he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you, if you call out to God, you'll be saved. And then he asks, how's that going to happen? How do we get to that point? How are they going to call on him they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom they've never heard? And how are they going to hear without someone preaching? And then he just stops and stares at us. How are they going to hear if you're not talking? We're all preachers. We are all to be proclaimers of this gospel. And I get it. That's a scary thing. There's a weightiness to that. And, it, and it's awkward and it's uncomfortable to, to steer a conversation toward the gospel. We're not, we're not used to talking about serious things, never mind eternal things. But this is how we ought to speak. To proclaim the gospel, to make it clear. Um, Paul wrote the book of Ephesians right next to the book of Colossians and the book of Ephesians. He says, pray that I would be Bold in my speech. It takes boldness. It takes courage. But it ought to be our joy in Christ. All right, I just want to guard against this a little bit. It's easy to hear this call to evangelism and, and, and feel it as a burden and a duty and a task. And oh, I'm a failure and I need to work harder. Um, it ought to be our joy in Christ that compels us. This peace and hope and life that we have in him ought to, to drive us to want to, to want to share this, to want to explain this to others. We shouldn't be ashamed about the, the awkwardness of it, or, 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 but we should be overflowing with excitement, wanting, to, wanting others to know this hope that we have. On a practical note, I would just say, um, if you don't know the person well, just start that as a simple conversation, a couple of simple questions. I find a question like, did you go to church growing up? Hey, what do you think? Do you believe there's a God? I'm going to push a little harder. Do you believe in a heaven and a hell? Uh, and, and I think you'd be shocked if you haven't done similar. People love to talk. People love to tell you what they think. And even if they really don't have any idea what they think, they'll make it up right on the spot and tell you what they now think. And the beauty is, no matter how close to the truth they come or how ludicrous a crazy idea they come up with in that moment, um, you then have the, the, the obvious next step to say, well, let me, let me tell you what the Bible says. God, man, Christ, response. That's it's really interesting that you think that. Let me tell you what I see in God's word. Again, it's not what I think, but this is what God says in his word. 
If you have more of a relationship with the person, then I, I think you're, you're biding your time a little bit more. You're going through life for them and you're watching for places where the, the brokenness and the, and the sinfulness and the, the weariness of this world intersects with their life. And it's at those points that you, you take that opportunity. Man, you know there's a reason this world stinks like it does, right? And you know there's an, there's an answer for it. There's a hope beyond the messiness of this world. It's God, man, Christ, response. That's how we got here and that's the way out. So pray, pray for the gospel work and then proclaim that truth. Jump on those opportunities to to speak it, to make it clear. And then finally, verses five and six, practice gospel life. Practice gospel life. So he says, uh, starting in verse five, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So we pray about it. We pray that God would open doors and and be at work, uh, and then we proclaim it. We open our mouths. We speak it out. We let it loose. And at the same time, we need to be practicing it. And by practice, I mean living out a life consistent with the words we speak. This world now in this current situation has these, these hypocrisy radars turned on high. We can't ignore that. And, and, and they're right to. Now, we're all sinners. Doesn't mean you need to be perfect. We're not going out and saying, look at how great I am. We're going out and saying, look how desperate and broken and sinful I was. And I found a great and glorious Savior. Come and see. Come and see. We want to get our priorities in place here. Job number one is the gospel, making it clear, speaking it out. That is our primary job. Okay, It's not as if someone can say, well, he's got the talking part. I'll do the living part. Nope. No, we're all called to the talking part. Absolutely, that's going to look different for different people with different personalities and different situations. But that is, we are all to be evangelists. But it's a secondary supporting role of that task that we live out a life that that affirms our message. And and though it may be secondary, it's it's not unimportant. People will judge your message by what they see in your life. They will. They'll judge your message by what they see in your life. People are going to look at you and the way you act and the way you talk and they will make assumptions about the Christ that you claim based on that information. Is your life laying down a good foundation for the gospel? First, Paul says that we're to walk in wisdom toward outsiders. The word walk there, Paul often uses uh, as just a general term for our our kind of day-to-day, day-in, day-out life. Our lives are to be guided by wisdom. Now, before we get wondering too long, what, what does that mean? What does wisdom look like? Once again, um, Paul tells us back in Colossians 1, 9 and 10. Listen to how he, he, he kind of unpacks and expounds on this idea of wisdom. He says, so from the day we have heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom, there it is, and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So you see this progression, right? It comes out of a knowledge of his will, understanding God, builds this spiritual wisdom, and that wisdom then produces a life, a walking worthy of the Lord. So wisdom is understanding God and putting it into action. It's the bridge between. Right? It flows out of a knowledge of him, and it, and it flows into obedience. So to oversimplify it, wisdom is obedience to God. Wisdom is obedience to God. And so looking back then uh, at, at earlier in chapter 3, as he talks about this is how we live the new life, here's a good place to start. Are you putting off sexual immorality, impurity, Passion, evil desires, covetousness, 
along with anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, and lying. Are we we putting those things aside? Those things don't define us anymore in, in the new life. In Christ, those things should have no place. Are you putting those things behind you? And are you putting on, are you living in then, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, and love? Would outsiders, people who who don't know Christ, who have no part in the church, would they use those words to define you as, as you go about your life out in the world? Do you live like Christ lived? Has your life actually been transformed by the gospel? Do you you practice what you preach? And in doing that, verse 4, he says we make the best use of our time. Um, That that word there um, for time, we've come across a few times, that's kairos. Um, It's it's making the best use of of every opportunity. Using the, the different situations in your life. Your interactions with your, your neighbors or your coworkers or your, your bosses or, or, or uh, customers or whatever it is. Are you seizing those moments? Are you, are you grabbing them as a, as a chance to, to live out this, this, this new life, this transformed life? You get into a fender bender. You have a disagreement with someone at work. You, you get bad service from a waitress. You get treated rudely. Um, those can be hard situations. Do I fire back? Do I stand my ground? Do I declare my rights? Or do I take this as an opportunity to live a very different life than what is expected? To see this as a chance to put that new life on display. Whatever interaction, do you you still represent Christ well? Are you being compassionate, kind, humble, meek, patient, forgiving, and loving. That's how we're to live our lives. That's the kind of living in in our ordinary life that that lays this this foundation on which our gospel message can stand. Here's a question. Is there anyone that you interacted with this week whom you would be embarrassed to have them walk into church this morning and judge the seriousness and the validity of the gospel based on their interaction with you. Practice that gospel life means walk in wisdom. Your life matters. Then Paul gets a little more specific. Your speech matters. One of the main ways that that people see our lives is by how we talk. Let your speech Be gracious, Paul says. Let your speech be gracious. Our speech should be gentle, kind, loving, winsome. It's easy to see, I think, the the contrast between Christ and the world, to see the the wickedness of the world and and think that our speech should be sharp. We We need to answer that. We need to cut to the bottom of this. We need to quit messing around. It should confront people and convict people. And and we heard Jesus say the world would hate us, and so we think that's justification for our speech to be adversarial and and contentious. That's not the way Jesus spoke. Yeah, in, in some debates with the religious leaders, he definitely landed some punches. But with sinners, with the lost, with the confused and the broken, John 1.14, I think, is the best concise description. The last words of that verse, he was full of grace and truth. They're not mutually exclusive. You don't have to sacrifice one to get the other, be it grace or truth. They go together. He didn't hide the truth. He didn't avoid the truth. But he was still gracious. He was still gentle and kind. Yes, the truth can be offensive. But that doesn't mean we need to be offensive as we speak it. If your words are not gracious, people are offended by you, they'll never have an opportunity to be offended by your gospel because they've already tuned you out. And it's not because of the truth, but because of us. 1 Peter 3.15, Peter says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, 
always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. One obvious implication, I think, today, if you live a Christ-like life in this world, at some point you are going to be confronted on your view of sexuality and gender and this whole dumpster fire that's happening in our world is going to come up. How do you answer that? How do you respond? It's okay to speak the truth. We don't soften God's word, but let it be done with gentleness and respect. Do it in a way that that those to whom you are speaking or those of whom you are speaking feel loved and respected. Even politics. How easy it is to misrepresent the the other side and just throw them under the bus mockingly, not understanding, not speaking gently and respectfully. So let your speech be gracious. And then Paul says, let your speech be seasoned with salt. Jesus told his followers, you're the salt of the earth. One of the the main functions of salt in their day was, uh, as they saw it, to purify meat and to to keep it from rotting, from going bad. It would preserve it. So our speech should be preserving. It should have that effect. We should be holding the the moral line. Over in Ephesians 4.29, Paul says the same thing from kind of the opposite perspective. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. So don't let your words be corrupting. That's the opposite of what salt does. Don't let them be seasoned with what is inappropriate and and ungodly and pushing that line. Rather, let your words be seasoned with salt. You're the one in the conversation who's pulling it back, who's holding it uh, toward what honors the Lord, keeping it from veering off into the gutter, as it were. I think it's also interesting looking at this metaphor and how it shows up in the Old Testament. Uh, Leviticus 2.13 says that when you go into the temple with a grain offering as a sacrifice, as as worship to the Lord, that grain offering was to be seasoned with salt. Exodus 30, 35 says the the incense that they were to to burn uh, in the temple, again, as this offering of worship to the Lord, was to be seasoned with salt, pure and holy. I think Paul may also be kind of picking up on that and, and suggesting, reminding us, our words ought to be an offering to God. The way we speak day to day is to be to be done as an act of worship to Him, um, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. How's your speech toward unbelievers? Is it gracious? Is it compassionate? Is it pure and holy, free from corruption as an act of of worship to the Lord? Why? Paul says so so that you may know how to answer each person. Let's just flip this. If you don't live that way, if your day-to-day life is, is not lived in wisdom, making the most of every opportunity, and your speech is not gracious, seasoned with salt, well, you don't need to worry about how to answer anyone because they're not asking. They're not interested. Either they don't know that there's anything different in you to ask about because they don't see evidence of it in your life, or they don't care what you have to say because you lack grace. They're not interested in your opinion. We're to be ambassadors of Christ, ambassadors of the gospel, representing him not only in what we say, but in how we live. So pray, pray for the gospel to do its work. Proclaim the gospel truth, making it clear, setting it loose, and then practice the gospel life. Live it out, speaking in such a way that that makes inroads into people's lives, and it gives credibility to this amazing message with which we have been entrusted. That's our job, church. That's our mission here and now, every one of us. In the words of Jesus, Matthew 9, 37, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We often see it the other way. 
I know that's my assumption. There's probably hardly anyone out there who, who would come to believe. Right? Is, there any, is there any value in me even going out? They're so hardened. They're so blind. Their ears are closed. Jesus says, nah, uh It is ready for harvest. It's just waiting for the harvesters to get out there. So pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. Let's pray. Let's pray. Let's pray first for that gospel work. Pray. I want to have you just take a minute where you're sitting by yourself. Um, Who are those people that come to mind? Who is someone that that you have the opportunity to to share the gospel with him in your heart. You desire to see the Lord at work, to see a door open for the gospel in their heart. Take a minute where you're seated. Just pray right now for, for that person, those people. Let's pray. We're going to continue in prayer. This time, uh, I'm going to make you a little more uncomfortable. I'm going to ask you to pray with somebody next to you, your spouse, a friend, a random person who just sat down the pew that you've never met. Introduce yourself if you need to. That's okay. Um, and uh, I want you to pray for one another. In turn, um, pray two things. One, that God would give them boldness in proclaiming the gospel, and two, that they would be able to make it clear. Boldness and clarity. Go ahead, why don't you just pray for uh, the person next to you. Take a few minutes, pray one for the other, and then switch. Give you 30 more seconds if you haven't switched yet. We're going to continue one. One last season of prayer. Uh, If you thought it was a bit strange to pray with your neighbor, um, we're going to get even less North American. Um, For those of you who have been different places in the world, this is is normal most places. It's just not normal for us. And uh, sometimes being uncomfortable is a good thing. I think it's a beautiful thing. Um, I want to ask you to stand. And uh, we're going to pray together. Out loud. All at once. Um, Because God can hear all of our prayers individually. Uh, don't worry about whether the guy next to you can, can hear you. He's too busy praying and wondering if you can hear him. And so we all just get over it and, and pray out. Um, 
and hearing the, the, the prayers of the saints, rising to our God, um, praying together. Uh, here's what I want you to pray. Pray that God would raise up faithful evangelists amongst us, that it would be us. He would mobilize and use us as workers in his harvest. Just take a few minutes um, all together, out loud. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are the God of the harvest. And you've told us that the, the harvest is ripe. The workers were few. Lord, here are we. Send us. Send us, Lord. Fill us with such a, a hope and a joy and a wonder of your gospel truth that we would overflow to take this great and glorious, wondrous gospel to a world that so desperately needs us. Lord, give us boldness. You know we are cowards. We are so fearful of men. We don't want to look foolish. Give us, give us courage, God. And help us to make it clear. Help us to, to speak your truth. Lord, we pray that you would raise up uh, us, this church, mobilize us for the work of your gospel, for the glory of your name, that we might be able to say uh, everyone in Olds, everyone in, in Mountain View County has heard the gospel because of Redemption Church. And Lord, that you then would take that gospel and, and transform lives. We pray in Jesus' name.